Hello and welcome to the Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Monthly Roundup. Every month, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug cell and gene therapy world and what they mean to you. Welcome to the show. Today's episode is a special one where we will be discussing San Diego-based Aristia Therapeutics. Aristia is a clinical stage drug company developing novel therapies to treat serious inflammatory diseases. I have with me Aristia's president and CEO, James McCabe. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so James, you were part of AstraZeneca before setting up Aristia. Tell us a little bit about Aristia's origin. What prompted the spin-off? Yeah, sure. Very happy to. So, uh, so I was uh, a long-term AstraZeneca um, executive, was with the company for nearly 30 years. My last role at AstraZeneca was as the CEO of a subsidiary that we had in San Diego called Ardea Biosciences. And that company was involved in uh, developing treatments for gout. And we were building a, a gout franchise there. And I had asked the, um, the biologists at Ardea to give me a list of targets for potential um, gout drug development. And CXCR2, which is the target that our um, asset that we licensed from AstraZeneca, was on that list. Um, so I sent that list to the, to the AstraZeneca team. They identified what was called AZD4721, and we've renamed it RIST4721. They identified that, and we did some early work at Ardea on potential treatments for, uh, for gout flare. And then um, AstraZeneca had a change in portfolio focus and decided to exit inflammation as a therapy area. So we actually ended up closing down the Ardea organization. And by then, I had really become very integrated into the San Diego innovation ecosystem and wanted to stay in San Diego. So I left AstraZeneca at that point in time and you know, decided that I wanted to set up Aristea Therapeutics, that it was going to be clinical stage, immunology, inflammation focused company. And I'd always really liked this molecule, um, uh, 4721, it was originally being developed in AstraZeneca for respiratory disease. And I was familiar with it from that time um, and really always liked the mechanism of action, liked the, uh, the profile of the molecule, and I always thought that it was a drug that was really looking for a disease. And the, that respiratory program had been terminated by AstraZeneca a number of years beforehand. So when I started to look at, you know, how, what are we going to base Aristea Therapeutics on? You know, I thought, well, let's start with RIST4721. Uh, we know that this molecule does what it's meant to do. It stops neutrophils trafficking from the bone marrow to the site of inflammation, the body. And there, you know, let's start with that. And um, then we went searching for the disease um, in order to develop the drug. Interesting. So what would you say are the key challenges in the early days? Were there any sort of legacy issues that you had to deal with? I wouldn't have said so many legacy issues. Obviously, I had, I had extremely good connections into AstraZeneca. I'd worked very closely with all the business development people and the executives there for, for many years. So that made the, the negotiations you know, relatively, um, relatively straightforward. Negotiations always take a long time. So um, it was a number of months after we closed the previous organization before we could get Aristea Therapeutics up and running. 
I guess the biggest challenge is that, you know, you have to license the potential drug and raise money at, at the same time. And that just takes takes a lot of effort. And, you know, we were lucky in the end to secure Novo Ventures as our funder for the Series A, which was a $15 million Series A, and they were the sole investor. So, you know, and I think maybe the, maybe the biggest challenge in setting up a, a biotech for the first time is everything you do, you do for the first time. And, you know, having been used to working in a big pharmaceutical company where you have people you know, doing everything in the in the background, you realize that, you know, that you have to have your hands on on everything as you set the company up. There were only four of us when we um, when we set the company up. You basically have your hands on everything, both from a scientific perspective and from a corporate or organizational um, perspective. And then the other challenge is always the assimilation of the data. AstraZeneca did a very nice job in delivering all the information, the know-how to us to allow us to develop the molecule. But it's a vast amount of information just gets, you know, delivered to you in one step. And you basically have to work your way through that data, make sure you understand it, identify any gaps that there are, and then really start to own that data yourself, develop your, uh, your development plan as you, as you move forward. Very much sounds like how FIFA started with the uh, two people in a, in, a, in a desk in uh, central London. So um, yeah. uh, very familiar with that. But what would you say in the current industry climate? Would big pharma look to diversify into different portfolios, etc.? Would they look at a lot more opportunities, similar sort of spin-off uh, like yours? Do you see that as a trend in the market at all? Yes, yes, I do. I think historically. Big Pharma have not done a lot of that. Um, the business development focus in Big Pharma tends to be on in-licensing or doing deals to bring assets into the company's portfolio. The other end of the spectrum is that they, they end up selling off more mature products in their portfolio to, to monetize the value of those and allow the organization to focus in on the key therapy areas. There are, of course, a lot of programs that get terminated in, in big pharma. And those reasons for termination don't mean that the drug's not developable. It just may be, it just doesn't fit the portfolio at the time, or the profile of the molecule is just not what the company's looking for. And in a lot of cases, those molecules just disappear because um, you know, they're there in the company, but the corporate memory goes, people get moved on to other projects. And it's very difficult from the outside to actually look in and see those molecules and identify them. I was obviously lucky being a, an AstraZeneca employee. I was familiar with the molecule. I knew it was there. And my guess is that the business development team at AstraZeneca didn't even know that molecule existed. So I think that's historically a big challenge, um, but I am seeing, I've had a number of conversations actually over the last few weeks with several big pharma, but three of them in fact have, actually set up specific units just to do this, to identify those potential assets that have been terminated or deprioritized in the company, and to actually try and ensure that they can get those assets out into the hands of small biotech, who can potentially then take them, repurpose them into a different disease, and then you know, bring uh, valuable drugs to, to patients. So, I see a definite shift in the way that that's, uh, that's happening, and that's good news for patients. Indeed, indeed. So let's hope there are a lot more spin-offs uh, here on. Taking a little of a 
deeper dive into pipeline and commercial opportunities. You've already mentioned a risk for 721, potential treatment for a rare chronic inflammatory skin condition currently in phase two. Tell us a little bit more about the disease area indication that you're going for and what are your commercial plans for this product? Yeah, certainly. So as I indicated, when we when we acquired RIST 4721, we knew how the molecule worked and we knew that it did what it was meant to do. So it stops neutrophils trafficking from the bone marrow to the site of inflammation. And that therefore opens up an opportunity across a range of diseases where the neutrophil is playing a key role in that disease process. We basically went searching for neutrophil-mediated diseases. We identified neutrophilic dermatoses as a group of diseases, inflammatory skin conditions where the neutrophil was playing a key role. Um, and then we narrowed that down to palmar plantar pustulosis, which is the disease that you're talking about, which is, again, it's a flaring inflammatory skin disease. Uh, patients get sterile neutrophil-filled pustules on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. And what happens is that the skin's very inflamed, it cracks open, very debilitating um, for the, the patient. And we decided that that, you know, based on the, the science um, and the way that our molecule worked, we felt that this was the best disease to basically test it out in and try and develop it. Uh, we did a, a phase 2A proof of concept study where we saw some nice activity of the molecule, particularly in patients that were actively flaring. And we're now moving forward into, into a phase 2B um, dose ranging study. I think in terms of the potential for this uh, drug, this disease has nothing approved in either the US or Europe to treat it. Um, there are about 170,000 patients um, in the US. So although it's a rare disease, it's actually one of the more common rare diseases. So that opens up a, a, you know, an excellent opportunity in terms of being able to give these patients something that will give them you know, some relief from this disease. Whereas today, although physicians will try and use off-label psoriasis-approved biologics um, and other topical treatments, and none of them provide a consistent relief for these patients. So I think we have an opportunity here with a really solid science behind the mechanism of action to, to really deliver something that will be of great value to these patients. Mm -hmm. Would Aprimilast be uh, one of your biggest competitors in this section? Yeah, so Aprimilast is, is obviously approved for psoriasis worldwide. It, like most approved psoriasis treatments, they do get tested for PPP, and there's actually an ongoing study for Aprimilast in Japan that's completed recruitment, but we have not seen the data for that to date. So certainly, could certainly be a um, potential um, competitor. As I said, the other psoriasis-approved biologics tend to be treated as well, but again, with mixed results. Gazelkamab, which is Janssen's IL-23, is actually approved in Japan for PPP, albeit on a rather unusual data set where the low dose level seemed to be effective and the high dose level didn't but it's not approved anywhere else in the world. Novartis's um, secukinumab, which is their IL-17, had a failed phase three study. Anaptis Bio's IL-36 had a failed phase two study earlier this year. So we believe that targeting any one of these individual cytokines is probably not the way to, to treat this disease. And our mechanism of action by targeting the neutrophils is upstream of all these individual cytokines. And we feel that that's a way in which we can differentiate uh, this treatment. 
the fact that we're also an oral treatment, um, as of course is a premolast, but everything else in this space is biologic. And we see certainly from our market research and the discussions with physicians and patients that having an oral treatment here is certainly preferred over a biologic. Mm -hmm. When do you expect to get FDA approval? It's likely to be in the 2026-2027 time period. We need to conduct the phase 2b dose ranging study. And then following that, we obviously need to review that data with the FDA, the European authorities, and then conduct a phase 3 um, study, which obviously will be, will be larger. And these patients are relatively rare. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it's always challenging to, to recruit these, uh, these studies for rare conditions like this. So, you know, and then, of course, once we generate the data, there's, you know, we have to put in the file that's over, uh, you know, a year's uh, review by the FDA. So probably around 2026, 2027. Mm -hmm. In July this year, you got to deal with Arena Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So what was the nature of this collaboration? What does ARENA bring to the table? Yeah, so we have a very nice relationship with ARENA. We started up Aristea Therapeutics in, um, in August 2018. And within the first six months of starting up the company, ARENA expressed an interest in what we were doing and wanted to, to understand if there was an opportunity to collaborate. So we first talked to them over two and a half years ago. And at the time, they just created their dermatology um, franchise. Um, it was not an area that they focused on previously. And although they were interested in what we were doing, they needed to get their dermatology franchise up and running. So we just kept in contact with them. About a year ago, they came back to the table and said, look, we're, we're ready to talk further about this. And they did a very thorough corporate and scientific due diligence. Um, in fact, when, they, um, when we announced the deal, Arena indicated to the, the investors and analysts that they um, reviewed over 200 opportunities. Ours was the one that was selected. So I think what's nice about the so it's been a long-term relationship with Arena, which is, which is actually a good thing because you actually get to know each other as, as organizations and, and individuals. And what also I think is they bring to the table is that the mechanism of action that we have with our molecule on neutrophils is very similar to the mechanism of action that their etrazomod molecule has on lymphocytes. So just a different cell type, but all the challenges, all the opportunities tend to be the same. So the ARENA team very, very rapidly understood what we were trying to do with RIST4721 and neutrophilic diseases. And we, you know, eventually, as you said, in, uh, in July this year, we um, signed a collaboration and an option to acquire deal with ARENA. Uh, and we did that in parallel with completing our Series B financing that was led by Fidelity. So in total, we raised $123 million to allow the development to proceed. What ARENA also brought to the table was some additional non-dilutive R&D funding that's going to allow us to expand the number of indications that we're um, going to study. So we were obviously moving forward with PPP. We already had plans to move into two other neutrophil-mediated diseases, familial Mediterranean fever and Bichette's disease. But with the additional money from ARENA, we're now also going to do proof-concept studies in hydratinitis supertiva, which is another rare inflammatory skin condition, and also an inflammatory bowel disease. I think, and finally, they also clearly bring as a much bigger organization, broad uh, manufacturing experience, 
medical affairs, commercialization experience. So we'll work very closely with them over the, the next 18 months to two years while we're generating the data to make sure that you know, we utilize their expertise together with the Aristea team's expertise to get this uh, drug ready to get to patients. So this deal with Arena focuses particularly on risks for 721 and potential indications uh, or Correct. sort of a life cycle. What about the other products in your pipeline? Do you see any potential once you've commercialized risk? Yeah, absolutely. As you've said, Arena's focus is very much on RIST 4721. And our, we've got two other CXCR2 antagonists in our portfolio. So, you know, if they move forward with that deal, they'll, they'll acquire those assets and all the disease areas that go with them. We're currently extremely active in bringing other assets into, um, into um, Aristea. We focus broadly on immunology molecules where, where the mechanism of action affects the immune system. And, and we tend to focus on, look at the mechanism of action, look at the profile of the molecule. And then if we believe that this is a molecule that's going to work, then we go searching for the disease. And we have a focus, as we indicated, on you know, rare um, inflammatory conditions. So we're very active right now. We're currently negotiating a couple of term sheets with, with other companies to bring new assets into the organization. And we have about 15 or so other um, molecules that we've actually got in different stages of due diligence. So we anticipate that you know, over the coming six to nine months, we'll, we'll bring an additional two or three molecules into to development. Uh, exactly what they'll, what they'll be at this stage, obviously we don't know until we've completed those deal negotiations, but probably a mixture of clinical and, uh, and preclinical molecules, but all focused on, the, uh, on inflammation, all focused on the immune system and likely to be repurposed into rare disease area. Would you then go in for a full-fledged acquisition or, or a licensing deal? It, yeah, it, very good question. It could be either, um, uh, depending on the, the situation of the other company and what they, what they are looking to achieve. There are some of the molecules that we're looking at where it would probably make sense for us to do an acquisition of the, um, the company or even a merger of the, mm -hmm. of the two companies. In other cases, you know, where the, the company has a, a broader pipeline of molecules that they're developing, and this, the one we're looking at may not be their top priority, then it would make much more sense to do a, a licensing opportunity. My, my experience from doing business development for many years is that you really need to keep your options open to begin with and then see where you can actually align the desires of the two organizations um, and find some common ground to work on the deal structure. You've had several rounds of funding so far and a successful collaboration with Arena. Would you think of going public at any point? Uh, yes, we, we certainly would. Uh, we don't intend to go public while um, this deal with Arena um, is, is in place. But certainly, you know, we're already building our team with a view to either taking Aristea Therapeutics public if Arena, for example, some reason does not exercise their option to acquire. Um, we'll be ready to take the um, Aristea Therapeutics with RISC 4721 and the portfolio of assets behind that public. And then the second opportunity is, as Arena are very focused on RISC 4721, 
um, we have the opportunity if they decide to exercise the option to actually spin our other assets out into a new company. And the plan would be to obviously do a series A financing of that, which is likely to be a crossover round and then take that new company with the existing management team public pretty quickly after that. But, you know, always with funding, you have to, to keep um, your options open, um, depending on how the, the, how the market is, the, the level of interest from the investors, how the development's going. So you have to keep all, all options on the table, but certainly going public is, is one for the future. Great. Fascinating. I'm looking to get your thoughts, what's happening in the US in terms of the pharma industry and the biotech industry, growing industries. But of course, there's reform. Seven rounds of or announcements of reforms have been made, especially in terms of pricing, reimbursement, and access. However, political will is always fluctuating. Given that you are a growing biotech, what do you think are your challenges going forward, especially this, with the regulatory issues surrounding pricing, reimbursement, if you do go the whole hog and commercialize? Yeah, sure. So you raise an extremely important point. And as you've indicated, unfortunately, that issue gets somewhat clouded by political opinions, which is a, which is a real shame because the issue here is ensuring, first of all, that any patient that needs a particular medication can get it at an affordable price. And then secondly, um, that the structure of the pricing still allows the pharmaceutical industry to take the extremely high risk that it takes when it develops um, uh, or tries to develop drugs, and also um, gives the pharmaceutical industry the opportunity to recoup the significant expenditure that they put into the drug so that they can then invest in, in more innovation. I think some of the challenges for people that don't necessarily understand that dynamic so well is that pricing reform just means crushing down the prices. And there's a real risk there that you'll crush the innovation um, that exists because if investors, you know, like our investors that came into Aristea Therapeutics, if there's not an opportunity to get a return on that investment, then they won't invest in the companies. And if they don't invest in the companies, then we couldn't develop our drug for the rare diseases that we're developing it for today. So I think there's no doubt that there needs to be pricing uh, reform. And, that, and I think, you know, the pharmaceutical industry need to continue to engage more. Um, there's a, a, a sort of grassroots um, initiative within the pharmaceutical industry that's called No Patient Left Behind, that one of the venture capital um, is leading. And I think it's really important that we engage in that. Um, as an industry and try to be part of the solution that's developed rather than, as you said, leaving this to the sort of political uh, decision makers. Um, clearly, they need to be part of the, the process. But if this is going to be driven by politics, it's, we're probably not going to get the best outcome for patients long term. James, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking us through Aristea's journey so far. I really do see exciting times ahead. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And that's it for this month. For more news and analysis, go to our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. 
Thanks for listening. See you next month.